Welcome to season four of the Charity Matters podcast. I'm Heidi Johnson, lifelong helper, nonprofit founder, and your host. I've been interviewing the helpers for a decade with my blog, and I'm so grateful to now be sharing these inspiring conversations on our podcast. Join me as we learn the challenges and stories of innovators, entrepreneurs, and modern day heroes who set out to solve the problems of humanity. Today, our guest is Jamie Beck, founder of the nonprofit Free to Thrive. I think you're going to be really inspired by the incredible work that she's doing to help survivors of human trafficking. I am so excited to have Jamie Beck with us here today, the founder of the nonprofit Free to Thrive. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Hey. I'm so excited to learn more about your work at Free to Thrive. I have done um, a number, I've had a number of conversations over the years about human trafficking, and I really think there's there's so many people who aren't really clear on exactly what human trafficking is. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what your organization does and a little bit about human trafficking before we dive into deep. Absolutely. Um, so Free to Thrive helps uh, human trafficking survivors with their legal needs. So we also do policy advocacy and training and, and education. And a, a big part of our training is to help educate the community about this issue, both through kind of more traditional trainings. We've also produced two films to help uh, the community learn about this issue. And really, I'm, I'm very, I'm so often surprised about how steep the learning curve is that we really, this is not an issue that we talk about as a community and most people don't even know the yeah. basics. So let me start with like, what is human trafficking? Yeah, um, I think it's super helpful and because it, I agree with that. And until I met a survivor, I didn't understand it and heard them speak, I didn't understand it. So I think it's really helpful. Yeah, I think it's really helpful. So human trafficking is essentially it's exploiting another person. It's uh, generally speaking, it's exploiting them for sex or labor. Um, it can be other things as well. Um, and really, it's just taking advantage of someone um, and using them as a, a, a source of free labor, I guess. Um, and when we're talking about human trafficking, it, it involves force, fraud, or coercion. Uh, when we're talking about labor trafficking, force, sex trafficking, any minor involved in a commercial sex, that's human trafficking, regardless of force, fraud, or coercion. And a, an adult involved in any sort of commercial sex act uh, requires force, fraud, or coercion. And, you know, it's so um, interesting to me and, and enlightening how this topic has changed because when we, when I was growing up, and I think I'm a little, probably a little bit older than you, but, you know, we talked about prostitution. There was like, oh, those are prostitutes. It was always about, oh, those girls are bad. It was never about, you know, the men that were paying for it. It was always that the women were getting arrested. And that was kind of the, the vibe. There was nothing that really gave us the backstory of what these, and I know it isn't always women, um, mm -hmm. but I know a lot of trafficking is, is women. Um, the backstories of how these people ended up in these situations and every story is completely different. There's no there's no step path, at least in my, the, the number of people that I've spoken to, it, they're very, very different every single time. And, and the most unexpected um, circumstances that take these people down these horrible paths. It's really true. There is no one story of human trafficking. I think that's part of the challenge of educating the community because people attend a training or they hear one survivor story and they think, okay, now I get it. Now I understand human trafficking, but there's so many different types. I mean, 
just to like to name a few within sex trafficking is you know pornography there's a lot of human trafficking happening within the pornography industry which people don't realize how much exploitation there is there there's uh, human trafficking when both with street prostitution and online prostitution there's now new ways of, of selling sex online through websites like OnlyFans, where you know certainly some people are choosing to you know sell themselves right. online but there's a lot of people who are being coerced into that work um but there's Strip clubs are also very often there's trafficking happening at or in connection with a strip club. Um, there's illicit massage, there's brothels. I mean, there's so many different ways, just sex trafficking. We didn't even talk about labor trafficking. About I mean, right. I mean, it, it, it's amazing to me to think about that. And um, I want to say, and I've interviewed a couple of really interesting people over the years, but um, I want to say, and you can correct me because I'm really famous for quoting statistics wrong but that there are more people enslaved in the world today than ever before. Is that true? Yes, that's true. From everything I've read, that's, that's, that's accurate, which is just completely it, shocking. It just gives me the chills everywhere. I mean, it just makes me, you think how in this world where you can maybe potentially understand when we didn't have communication systems years ago, how this could happen because someone wouldn't be able to communicate to reach out to get help. Um, but now the communication is almost part of the problem and versus versus a solution for rescuing them. It's almost part of the problem. It, it, yeah. It's just, it's just devastating. It's absolutely devastating. So I know when people um, are young and they say, when I'm older, I want to grow up and be this an attorney, obviously, maybe in your case, um, people don't usually say they want to be a nonprofit founder. That just usually doesn't make the top 10 or the top 50 on the list. So there's always a journey and something that happens. And it's usually a crazy, unexpected path. Um, it's never a straight path. It's never something anybody wanted. It's something that just happens. And so share with us, because you're an attorney, um, share with us your journey from being an attorney to a nonprofit founder, because that is, you worked really hard to be an attorney and you probably worked twice as hard being a nonprofit founder, <laughs> but talk to me, Jamie, about the journey. Absolutely. You know, it's so funny that you say that. I've never, I've never thought about it, but it's really, you don't have a whole lot of kids saying, I want to start a nonprofit when I grow up. No. Um, and that's <laughs> I certainly didn't say that as a kid. Um, I was always very involved in the community uh, growing up in some ways, you know, help, helping out in ways big and small. And that's something that I grew up with that mentality of, of, of giving back. But mm -hmm. I really thought I would do that as a lawyer. And um, that's a huge part of why I went to law school. And I did say I want to be a lawyer when I grew up when I was younger <laughs> and, you know, was fortunate enough to, to be able to follow that path and um, achieve my dream of being an attorney. And um, I, you know, I graduated from law school and as most lawyers graduating from law school had a ton of student debt and yep. um, was very, I was very fortunate that I got a job at a big law firm in San Diego. And, you know, my, my thought I had, I went to law school, wanted to be a public interest lawyer, but had student debt, got a, a great opportunity at a law firm. And I said, I'll work there for a couple of years and, um, you know, pay down my student loans and then I'll figure out my path from there. And while I was there, the way that I filled my cup of this need to give back and to do some good in my community was through volunteer work and pro bono work um, at my law firm. And so that that was actually the very beginning of what put me on this path. And what happened was I was 
um, both really involved in our feminist bar association, which is called Lawyers Club of San Diego, and also taking pro bono cases from local legal nonprofits. And a lot, very lot, a lot of things happened. And as I'm sure you probably hear from other nonprofit founders, like sometimes you just you end up on this path and the path starts to take you away. Like it, it became something that it's I just kept current. saying yes. It's a current. It is. <laughs> it will just take you down the river. <laughs> just takes exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. And so a, a bunch of things happened all at once that all put me on this path. One thing was that Lawyers Club took um, a specific interest in the issue of human trafficking. And so we were doing education around it. And I was learning that um, at, you know, kind of legal trainings that there's this huge problem in San Diego. That's where I first learned about human trafficking is at these trainings, finding out it's happening in my community. There's a huge need for lawyers to help survivors. And I was like, okay, well, I'm a lawyer. I can help survivors. <laughs> um, and this is something that, you know, okay, this is a way for me to give back. And, um, you know, certainly when you start to hear survivor stories, you immediately just, any person I speak to, they just say, what can I do to help? And I, I, I said that, I said, what can I do to help? So I took a pro bono case uh, with a survivor who um, she had some criminal charges related to her trafficking. And so I worked with a, another attorney at my law firm who had some criminal law experience. I'm a civil lawyer at the time. So like don't right. know anything about criminal law and I'm trying to help right. the survivor. And she was just absolutely incredible. She was, um, you know, did, she didn't have a lot of this, the, the thing, the kind of um, vulnerabilities that people often assume that trafficking victims have. She was, came from a, a loving two-parent home. She was very close with her family, middle-class family, um, very good student. Just She was just a normal teenager and she fell in love with an older guy um, and it was actually him and his family exploited her. Oh, um, God. And it's just, it's crazy. You just can't imagine that these things happen and there's so much shame that happens that she didn't tell her family what was going on and it just kept kind of pulling her further and further into this world. And by the time she turned 18, he, you know, had complete control over her and she had been wow. kidnapped at that point and, and was really, um, you know, no longer like able to talk to her family and things like that. So it's, I, this all, I get to know her, I get to know her story. I help her with these criminal charges. And we essentially, what the ultimate outcome of her criminal case was, was an expungement. It was, you know, you, you did the record. things the court asked you to do and you have a clean record. Right. And as a civil lawyer, not knowing anything about criminal law, I did not know that an expungement in California and probably in a lot of other states as well, if, if an employer runs your criminal background, that still shows up. And we all think expungement means wiped clean. Yeah, that's not clean. true. Right. Yeah, that's, oh. that's what I thought. As, you know, as an attorney, I was like, well, your record's expunged, you're good right. to go. And, and so what happened was she, um, she had she got her GED while I was working with her. She then goes on to college and she's trying to get a, a job while she's in college. And she was looking at retail jobs and restaurant jobs and she couldn't get a job because of her background. They were running um, it. Wow. They were running it. And so she calls me up and she's like, Jamie, you know, I can't get a job. Is there anything could it help? And I'm like, we expunged your record. There is nothing else we can do. Now at the same time, this is where kind of the universe started to conspire. Um on, and that's on what my happens, by the way. That's <laughs> right? the way it works. There are no coincidences, as you now no. know. No, there I you know it's so funny. Ever since going down this path, I say that repeatedly is I don't believe in coincidences. And this is yeah. just one of those moments where just magical right. things happened. And what happened was I'm getting this call from my client saying, you know, I can't, I can't get a job. And then at the same time, so I mentioned we we're doing trainings. Well, we learned at one of these trainings that we hosted that there are these laws called vacature laws. And 
those laws allow human trafficking survivors to clear criminal charges from their records that are related oh. to their trafficking. And a vacature law, usually, like if every state's law is different, but the idea is that it's a it's a full fresh start and the charges actually are cleared off your record completely, not like everyone can see them right. um, when they run your background. And so then this, you know, this group of lawyers at Lawyers Club were like, okay, well, we, we understand that there are these laws in other states. At that time, there's 11 other states. This is about 2014, maybe 2015. Um, 11 other states had these laws around the country. And we said, well, why don't we have this in California? And another part of the work that we were doing to address human trafficking, trafficking was legislative advocacy. So right. we have this training in October, and then we have this legislative roundtable in December where we pitch ideas to elected officials for new bills that will help survivors. And so we said, um, we have to put this at the top of our list. And so that in uh, two months later in December, we pitched this. A local state senator, Marty, Marty Block, took up the bill, and he said, we're going to pass the vacature bill. He introduces the bill in January. And this is my first experience with legislative advocacy. I'm like, this is so easy. Like, you just give an idea to a legislator, and then they, like, they make wow. a bill, and then it it becomes I've, the law. This is, what's the, why I, is this so difficult? I've never heard of government working this quickly, ever. And I've spent a lot of time in DMV lines and post offices, and I have never heard of anything like that. That's crazy. That's fantastic. It was crazy. And all the while, during that whole year, while we were um, advocating for this bill, I kept calling my clients saying, we're working on changing the law. Like there's nothing that I can do to help you right now, but we're going right. to change the law. And, you know, I can't make any promises, but you know, we're going to try. And if we pass the law, then I'll help you. So lo and behold, this, the good thing is this is something that's really hard to, for people to oppose, right? Like who doesn't want to help you and Japanese right. survivors right. who have right. these criminal charges? Um, I won't go down the, the rabbit hole of telling you who doesn't, but um, very, very little opposition. <laughs> um, and so we passed the bill and I call her up and I say, we passed this law. You're going to be my first client. I have no idea what we're doing, um, but I'm going to figure this out. We're going to figure it out together. Uh, so as long as you're willing to be patient with me, not having any clue what I'm doing, let's right. do it. <laughs> so I take this first case and the universe is still conspiring. Around that time, a RFP came out from the County of San Diego for pro bono legal services for human trafficking survivors. What's an RFP? Oh, I'm sorry. A request for proposal. It was basically okay. a, a, a contract with the County of San Diego for okay. you know somebody to provide free legal services to trafficking survivors. Okay. Um, and this really happened because there was a huge unmet need. Nobody was doing this work in San Diego. Like here, I'm a pro bono lawyer, and I definitely can't take all the cases of all the survivors right. that need this help. And we now have this new law, so we have all these survivors who not only need it now, but survivors for years who've needed this help but could right. never get it. So, so the backlog there's just a, is a flood, huge. right? Huge backlog. So I take this case, and at this point, I've been involved in anti-trafficking work um, for two or three years, and this is now my passion. I'm like, this is what I'm supposed to do as a lawyer. Um, I'm terribly bored with my law firm work, right. and all my cases just are not, you know, tugging on my heartstrings the way this one survivor's case is. And so at this point, I apply for this funding. I have this name. At this point, I had a name of a nonprofit. I'd filed articles of incorporation. I've, I've created this nonprofit called Free right. to Thrive. I don't have a board. I don't have 501c3 <laughs> status. I have a name. And, and you don't, and I'm guessing you didn't know what you were doing because most oh, people don't. No, no right. and even as an attorney, they don't teach you anything about running a business or a nonprofit right. in law school. So this was all new to me. But what I did have is a really, really expensive business plan. Um, at this point, I had spent about a year and a half designing Free to Thrive and creating my dream organization through 
tons of research conversations with local nonprofits, with anti-trafficking nonprofits around the country. So I had a vision. Um, I understood what the services that we'd offer and how we deliver them and what the model was. We just didn't have the funding to do it or the organizational structure to, to which, do the work. Which is, exa- <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so fascinating because we have 1.6 million nonprofits in the United States and all of us um, are entrepreneurs. All of us who start nonprofits are entrepreneurs. And yet our business model, you talk about your business plan, is relying on the kindness of others to fund our vision and our plan. And we're running a business just like anybody else. We just need kindness and generosity as part of the equation, which isn't always the best or easiest business model. Just my experience, just saying, doesn't mean people aren't kind and generous because people are amazing, but it's just a little bit harder. So talk to me about some of the challenges you had um, out the door and what have continued to be some of your challenges with this work. Because it's it's the hardest work anyone will ever do. And the most rewarding and the hardest. It's so true. It's so true. And I couldn't agree more with what you said. Um, so, you know, at the beginning, it was just like drinking from a fire hose. It, you know, the need was so great and um, there just was not, there was not enough time in the day. I was doing this by myself. I, we had no staff. We had some pro bono lawyers. I had some volunteers, but um, it was just me. And um and yeah, so I'm trying to do this by myself and try to get it started with enough, you know, very little funding. We also only had one year of funding. So we did, I didn't say that we did end up getting this, this funding, this contract from the County of San Diego, which was exactly one year of funding for my salary and some of our startup costs. And then I got one grant from one foundation that also helped cover and like initial startup costs to get it off the ground. Um, right. In the beginning, we're both kind of, we're building a board, we're getting our tax status, doing all the things that we need to do. And, um, you know, just all the things that you do to start a nonprofit and, you know, the early days were really learning how learning everything. I think this is one that I talk to a lot of people about starting nonprofits or who want to, or who at the early stages and the learning how, you know, governance, finance, you know, running your board, you know, all the different things that you need to do to run a nonprofit on top of designing your programs and offering your services and you know, staffing and HR and personnel things. Once you start to to grow your team, all of those things all at once, you're just learning um, a ton. So that it's, was like the early, it's crazy. early years. And I think one of the hardest things you talk about working, you know, drinking from a fire hose, I think one of the hardest things and one of the things we realized kind of, most of us realize hopefully earlier than later, but it may take a minute. There's a moment when we realize we can't help everybody. There's a moment when we realize that the need is greater than our solution. And it's one of the hardest moments as a nonprofit founder when you just, you haven't slept, you haven't done your laundry, and yet you feel that you have the backs of these people on you and you feel so responsible to them. And I can only imagine your situation because you're building real relationships with these people that you're serving um, that you know, we go to bed at night and it's not like we didn't make enough, you know, pencils in the pencil factory. We go to bed at night thinking of all the people we didn't finish helping who weren't going to eat or weren't going to be, you know, have their, their records expunged or aren't going to be safe or whatever's going to happen to them because of our work. And, and it's a, it's a different kind of um, challenge. I think it's a different kind of weight that I don't think most entrepreneurs experience. I think it's a little true. 
And the, the, you know, one of the, I think one of the hardest things about being a nonprofit is that there, the need for your services, if you are doing something that is having an impact on the community, the need for your services almost always will outpace your capacity to fill it. So we went yep. from a staff of one to a staff of 14. We've oh, wow. grown our services. Congrats. We've grown, grown, thank you. It's been an That's amazing huge. journey. We've grown our geographic footprint and we are still woefully understaffed and underfunded to meet the need for services to the point right. where it's just, it's daunting. And you know, what you said about realizing that we can't help anybody, everybody, that is one of the hardest things is the saying, I, I've had to learn how to say no. Um, and that I just, it's, it's like, if, it's you're, if you're going to this work, you want to help people, right? We want right. to help everybody that contacts us. And there's so many people that we have to turn away either because um, they don't fit in with the within the geographic area we serve. They their needs don't align with what we the services that we do, or we just don't have the capacity um, mm-hmm. to help them. And it's really it's always a struggle between doing the best, highest quality work for the clients that we're currently serving versus right. helping everybody who needs our help. So that exactly. struggle is real. And the struggle is absolutely real. So I always say, like the the bucket, I call it the bucket. The bucket is heavy when. You know, you still have to do your laundry. You've got to go to the grocery store. You have all these people who need you for something really serious, really big, really intense. And you're just like, I I don't know how I'm going to pick up that bucket today. Because at the end of the day, it does stop with us. Yes, we have a community. And I've never met a nonprofit founder that says, oh, yeah, I did this myself. Every single person, it takes a huge village to do this work. But it's still our bucket because it's our vision, it's our dream, it's our whatever it is, and it's ours. And so what do you what do you do when that bucket's heavy? What fuels you to keep going? So in doing this work, I've had to learn truly like what self-care means. And it's a term that gets thrown around so much, but I've had had to actually learn to identify my needs and take care of myself because I know that I cannot sustain this work if I don't. And I've also had to help um, learn and grow with my team um, as we've grown so that we can all sustain this work together. And so part of it is slowing down at times to take care of myself um, and to do the things I need to do, trying to have daily practices. It, It can't be like, oh, you know, I did, I did my self-care. I'm good for a while. Right. Like it has Check. to be a daily practice right. um, because it just, it's kind of a never, never ending. And particularly with working with trauma survivors, which many nonprofit leaders do, many nonprofits right. work with, you know, people who've experienced trauma, the, um, the residual trauma or vicarious trauma that we experience uh, from this work is very heavy and it has serious mental health impacts. And that's something that I had to learn through experience of, I was having all these it, you know, direct, um, you know, symptoms of vicarious trauma. And only did I learn about it through trainings on vicarious trauma. I was like, oh, this is happening to me. Um, I need to do something about this. And so I've learned a lot about vicarious trauma and how to address it. Um, but to, to the point of like, what fuels you? Like part is like, how do I sustain this work? And the other right. piece is what fuels me. And, and it truly it. is, it truly is our clients. I mean, they are so incredible and you know, when I think about both their stories and what they've overcome, one, it like anything that I experience pales in comparison to what they've right. experienced and what they've overcome. So like on any hard day, like I think about, I think about my clients and their strength and their resilience. 
And also I think about the wins. We spend a lot of time at Free to Thrive. Like we have a lot of hard days and we talk a lot about the wins because they're so powerful. When we think about like, what does it mean to have this client's record completely cleared? Um, You know, what does it mean for her to have a restraining order, custody of her child? Like this, this is, these are things that they're, you just can't quantify the impact on that person's life, on their children's life, on breaking generational cycles. It's just, it's incredibly powerful. And so I, I have to come back to the why of why I do this work, why we exist. And, and I think that that impact you mentioned is so important. I have such a love-hate um, relationship with that word in the nonprofit space. We write grants to get funded and we have to you know, measure our success and measure our impact. And, and, you know, how do you measure someone getting their child back? How do you measure someone being able to get a job? How do you measure, you know, you can say how many hours you worked and how many people you served, how many people you fed and all those great statistics. But if you had to measure your impact, what would you, and you mentioned some things earlier about, you know, you're, you've grown your staff, you've grown the area that you're serving, but what are some of the things you would say that your impact is? And it doesn't, it could be a story or it could be statistics. I have no, um, no marriage to that word. I think it can mean a lot of things. And I think it gets overused in the non- and, and, and misused in the nonprofit space. It's so true. Um, I also have a love-hate relationship with that word for that reason. I just like, you're speaking, speaking to my soul as you're talking. <laughs> so I'm just like, oh, I, I feel all these things very deeply. Um, you know, there's, you know, we, in, in the, this world, we talk about quantitative and qualitative data and, and how we measure impact those ways. And, you know, the qualitative way is, you know, how many clients have we served and how have we helped them? And we actually have a really exciting data point that I just, I was looking at our data. I was like, oh my gosh, we're about to hit a huge milestone. We are about to have our 500th completed legal matter. Um, um, wow. So we, Congratulations. Thank you. So we, you know, we've, we've been a, a nonprofit for six years, serving clients for five years. And, you know, the first couple of years, our, our numbers were so small because we we're still just so much trying to get up and running and learning how to do the work. And we've gained a lot of momentum. And so just to hit that number is incredible to, it just, it took me back. I was like, oh my gosh, like, wow, we've done that. That's amazing. And, and it's then, not just the 500, it's the ripple effect of all those lives because exactly. they're mothers, they have children, they have other, the, the impact is, is so much bigger than just that. And yeah. And that's, that's where you get to the, you know, the qualitative and each one of those numbers represents a life and a person. And, you know, many of our clients, you know, each, each client may have multiple legal matters. Um, and you know, what each of those what each of those cases or legal matters does to break down some barrier that they face. I mean, we're talking about, you know, them being able to get jobs and housing and, you know, it's, you know, I have, there's, there's, there's so many clients who I just, I think about their stories and I just, I can't even, you know, believe the journey that they've had, but, you know, one client, you know, when I first met her, she had a criminal record in three different counties in Southern California. Um, She had warrants in two counties and she um, was she was nervous just to leave San Diego because she was worried that if she went to Orange County or Los Angeles, she would get arrested because of these old warrants. And these were like ten year old cases. You know, she'd wow. been you know it, it, out of the life for a very long time and had moved on with her life. But she would apply for jobs and she'd get the job. She'd start doing the job, and then they'd run a background check and they'd say, "We love you. We want you on our staff, but we can't keep you because of your wow. background." So she just had this 
you know, she had very limited options. And, um, you know, we were able to clear her entire record. Um, during the time that we were working with her, she relocated. So she needed housing. She was looking for a new job. And she was able to get an apartment, to get a job because of the work that we had done. And now she's just, you know, she's doing incredible. And she's, you know, doing really impactful work, working with survivors of trauma and work that she may have not been able to clear a background check to get that job in the past. That's fantastic. I love that. That's a happy ending. So if you could dream any dream um, for your organization, what does that look like? You have to be a dreamer, Jamie, when you're doing this work. And obviously you had a dream when you started Free to Thrive. So what does that big dream look like for you? I have lots of dreams for Free to Thrive, both big and small and short and long-term. Um, so the, the kind of big visionary dream is to be a global organization, um, to work on this issue, not just you know, locally or regionally, but on a, on a global level of, um, you know, the, the human trafficking is a global issue. And I, and I would love for you to thrive to be, to have a global footprint and help survivors everywhere. I also would very much love to expand to serve um, survivors of other types of interpersonal violence, domestic violence, sexual assault, childhood trauma, most of our clients are what we call poly victims. They're, they have lives that have had all of those types of trauma or multiple types of trauma. Um, but I sometimes people will contact us and they're a DV survivor. And so we can't help them because they fall outside of our, our um, mission. And so I'd love right. to be able to help. You know, there's such a huge unmet need for services for survivors of, of different types of trauma. And then the other, you know, real practical dream that I have that you know, when you talk about challenges, kind of goes back to that is, is to have, uh, to be a sustainable organization when it comes to our funding. Um, right. It, almost all of our funding. That's the right holy now, grail. That's the holy grail. <laughs> right. That's the holy grail. The holy you know, almost grail. all of our funding is, is um, a single year, you know, grant or, you know, government contract or um, a donor who's given a, a gift that is a one-year gift. And so every single year we start from zero. And yeah. so right now we're really working on, you know, multi-year funding, but it is, you know, it's gotten, it was hard before the pandemic. It has gotten harder and harder each year. I thought it would start to get easier, but it's only gotten worse. I agree with that. I was just talking, I run a <laughs> nonprofit by day and we're doing our projections for next year. And with the economic downturn and things that are, you know, the state of things right now, um, we're really nervous making projections because I, what I think people don't realize about nonprofits, when we're looking at our budget and setting our budget for the year, we're projecting how much money we're going to raise and how many people we're going to serve. And, and it's kind of pie in the sky. It's a little bit like pin the tail on the donkey. I mean, you think that this foundation is going to support you and they probably will because they have in the past, but you don't really know. And it's really, it's really hard running a business um, that has payroll and lights and all the expenses, marketing, all the things that businesses have, um, when you're trying to project something. And I, I feel, I feel exactly what you're saying. Cause I literally had the conversation this morning about, oh my gosh, I'm nervous for next year's projections. I just don't yeah. know what it's going to look like. And, um, and people are so great, but when they're, you know, when they can't fill their gas tank or, whatever they're dealing their own grocery bill has gone up significantly it makes their giving takes a hit right of course it does 
it, it really is. And the added challenge that I don't think our donors truly understand is when we, when we're talking about these challenges, you know, of you know rising inflation and you know cost of living going up, that impacts our staff too. And if we can't keep pace and pay them, you know, if we can't keep pace with inflation and increase their salaries every year, then they're actually losing money, right? Right. They're effectively losing money because their spending power is decreasing year over year. And yet our funders, they'll give the same gift each year. So, and not every funder, some have grown with us, right. but many funders, it's like a foundation of like, oh, we're going to give our annual gift of this amount, just like we gave last year with no one, no accounting for the fact that our cost of doing this is our insurance costs have skyrocketed over the last three years. It's and, insane. And not to mention that, and I heard it today, um, that dollar that we all have, that we were hold that paper dollar is really worth 88 cents right now. It's yeah. really 88 cents. It's not a dollar. And so if you get, you know, that whatever donation, it's not worth exactly to your point, exactly what it was. And and donors are wonderful and fantastic, but they don't always realize that. So it's, it is, it's, it's, and you just don't want to be ungrateful, but it's just a reality that we all deal with. And it's a huge, it's a huge challenge. So yeah. I can only imagine um, in the last six years, there have been, a number of life lessons that have gone with this work. And one of the things you said, and I'm not trying to steal your thunder, but um, one of the things that you did say, which I think is that is one of the best things about doing this work is that we get slapped upside the, the head when we're having a bad day. Our perspective is just like, wait, what? I had to pay more at the grocery store or whatever. And this person just said this happening. So we get this wonderful gift of, um, perspective that is part of our our pay for the long hours and the work that we do. But what what are some of the lessons that you've that you've learned from doing this work? Um, one thing is to surround my myself with people who know more than me and who have strengths that balance out my weaknesses or areas of growth, both on my staff and board. I I. Um, one of the things I love is finding our staff sweet, what I call their sweet spot. You know, people may come join our team for a particular position. And part of my role is helping find what their highest and best use is at our organization and right. um, kind of learning, learning that. But so oftentimes there's people both on our staff and on our board who can fill my own gaps, right? Like I came in with no finance experience and that being one of my, my areas knowing going into this of like, this is extremely important for us to exist as an organization. It is not anything I have any professional training on. So I need to surround myself with people who know way more about nonprofit finance than I do. And so mm -hmm. I, you know, had people on the board that knew, that are amazing, you know, nonprofit finance and for-profit finance experts so that, and have, they've generously taught me, you know, everything from, you know, budgeting to, you know, payroll and finances and, right all the tax compliance, Cash all the things that I had to learn. And yeah. And all, yeah, all that fun all of stuff it. you get to do. It's, so that's it's a been lot. a huge part of it. Um, learning my own strengths and weaknesses, uh, growing as a leader. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to run an organization, just you. It's another thing to have a staff of people and to be able to have a vision and lead them forward and support them. Um, you know, the that past few years have been, so tremendously challenging for all of us. And, um, you know, not only are we doing this work remotely for two years, but 
you know, all of us have faced our own personal adversity on top of the adversity that the world is facing right now. Right. And, you know, being there to support each other. Um, I think one of the great gifts for me is to be able to create an environment that is truly a supportive and inclusive workplace. That is, I created the place that I wanted to work. Um, law firms are not a really great right. environment for people. They're not a great place for women. They're not a great place for people of color. And I, you know, definitely had my own experiences as a woman at a law firm that, you know, faced lots of barriers and tons of, you know, things that I wouldn't want anybody else to experience. And, you know, it's a, it's a great privilege and honor to create the workplace that, you know, I want to work here because, um, you know, we really care about everybody at the organization and really work so hard to support one another through all these difficult moments. And, you know, that's been a learning curve of how do you do that? How do you even create that type of workplace and how do you attract people? Yeah. It's all about the culture. That culture Um, is is key. Culture is key. Yeah. It really is. And how do you cultivate it? Right. It, it, It is a process and it's a long process, but it is, it does almost override um, not the work, but it overrides so many things. And I think um, creating a great work culture is something that doesn't get enough um, value and attention. I think it's a super valuable thing. So do you think that you've changed in this last six years? Do you think you've, you've changed with all these experiences? Oh my gosh. I'm definitely a completely different person than when I started. Um, and how so? It's so hard to put my finger on it. Um, I think I've just grown a lot as a person um, and as a leader. Um, I've learned a lot of lessons, many the hard way. I mean, um, you know, that's we, how we, we usually learn them. them. That's how we learn them, Jamie. Yeah, and it's you know, I I would much rather not, but I think that's just how you know how life is. Um, but we you know we kept saying we're building the plane while we're flying it, and that's what we've been doing, and that. That sometimes means that you're gonna you're gonna crash a couple of times. You're gonna crash. You, you know, there's definitely been a lot of lessons along the way, but um, I think just my I'm just constantly learning and growing and finding um, you know finding you know how to how to be better and do better. And I think one of the you know the areas I'm learning a lot about myself in this process and um, like one one area for me is. I, my MO is like, I'm always looking forward. And I oftentimes like my my attitude is like, just keep pushing. Like, it doesn't matter how hard things are just like, keep, you know, I'm extremely hard worker. And what I do is I push things down. Like I don't stop to take time to process things, to feel feelings when, you know, something is, you know, when things happen, right. Good or bad. Like, I'm just like, we got a grant. Cool. Let's keep going. Or wow, that was really awful. And that's super, you know, sad or traumatic. I just, you know, I'm just like, let's keep going. Let's keep going. And I can't do that in this work. Uh-uh. That's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've had to learn to slow down, to feel feelings, to process things, which right. we don't really talk about in the professional world of feeling feelings and processing mm-hmm. emotions. And right. Well, and also things, you're, you a, have to. <laughs> you're in a position of being a sponge, and you have to let it flow through you. And how do you, how can you be a sponge and not absorb some of that pain? And when you're a keeper of such pain, um, it is not easy for pain to flow through the sponge. And yeah. and and we we take it on and we make it our own. And and then we work ourselves into these, you know, crazy spots. Um, and, and I think it's part of, I don't want to say it's part of the 
makeup of a nonprofit founder, but it kind of is. It kind of goes with the turf. We're all Energizer bunnies. We all go a million miles an hour. And to your plane crash analogy, I use it with the car, but I always say to my board, you know, I'm driving in a race and I cannot, I don't have the time to stop and pull over and check the oil and rotate the tires. I just don't. I have to keep going. And we really have to stop and put oil in the car and we really have to stop and check the tires and we really have to slow down and make sure everything's okay before we move ahead. And uh, I think it's a hard lesson for a lot of us. I mean, I know it wasn't easy for me. It's so true. It's definitely tricky. So tell me where we can support you, where we can donate, how we can volunteer, all those great things. What can we do to help Free to Thrive? Oh, uh, well, I, of course, love that question and so appreciate it. Uh, our website is freetothrive.org and our social media handles are free to thrive SD for, you know, um, Instagram and Facebook. I think LinkedIn is just free to thrive. So you can definitely, you know, go to our social media. We actually have um, our annual gala coming up in, I can't believe this, a week and two days from now in San Diego. We're just about sold out. I think the, the, uh, event, congratulations. I'm not the event's going to be over now, but I think about by the time this, this, runs. Yes. but, um, but so we do, we do have kind of annual events to attend. We have two, I would say if people want to learn more about human trafficking, we have two incredible films that are on Amazon prime that people should definitely watch. One is called starfish and one is called last warning shot. They're both co-produced with false heart productions and are both narrative films about human trafficking where, um, you know, we want people to watch these films and learn about this and do, you know, have film screenings, you know, host a screening for your book club or your um, parent group or your community group or your rotary club, um, because we want people to learn this information. And that's one way of getting involved is to, to help out with that. And great idea. (laughs) And lawyers can uh, be pro bono lawyers for us if you're licensed to practice in California. Um, And if you're, you know, we're also growing our board. So we have opportunities to get involved in, in that way as well. That is awesome. Well, Jamie, you are amazing. And I love what you're doing to help so many people. 500, congratulations. We're so excited. And thank you for sharing your story with us and your incredible work. We're really grateful. Thank you so much for having me and for the work that you're doing. We're we're all in this together. We are all in this together. That's for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Charity Matters podcast. I really enjoyed talking to Jamie Beck about what it takes to start a business that truly changes people's lives. I think Jamie's comment about growing as a leader was so inspiring and true. To learn more about modern day heroes like Jamie, or if you'd like to reach out to us, visit us at charity-matters.com or connect with us on Instagram at Charity Matters. If you enjoyed our conversation, we would love it if you shared this with your family and your friends. And please don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. Remember, together, we can make a difference. One small act of kindness at a time. Charity matters.